This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It's a Thanksgiving Day edition, Thanksgiving Week edition of Play-By-Play Cast. Welcome back into the podcast, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. You can, as always, reach out to us on Twitter at PXPCast. My Twitter handle is at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, give us a shout. Uh, give somebody else a shout, and uh, we'll, we'll move forward together. Uh, different kind of episode today, and I'm kind of excited for this one. Uh, a guy named Eric Merlis is joining us, a former coordinating producer with FS1. He's worked with CBS Sports Network and the NBA and was in media relations uh, for the New York Islanders earlier on in his career. Uh, he is the author of a new book called I Was There. It is his second book. He wrote one uh, about 10 years ago, a little less than 10 years ago. Uh, called Being There, where he talks to sports personalities about moments they witnessed in person. I Was There, the new one that uh, is out now, uh, talks to broadcasters and journalists, um, writers and play-by-play guys, uh, all sorts of different outlets of sports media about the top five moments they remember being there in person. And that could be top five moments, not necessarily top five events, although there are a lot of Super Bowls and World Series and things like that in there, uh, but top five moments, things that stuck with them throughout their careers. And it's uh, an incredible collection of people. Um, if we could get half the people he has in this book on our podcast, uh, we, uh, we could all die happy. Uh, it's a tremendous job by, uh, by Eric Merlis, and he was kind enough to join us uh, this week. A little bit of a shorter episode um, here on Black Friday. We will get back into the swing of play-by-play guys uh, next week, but uh, but this one was fun because it's a different perspective um, that Eric has. And we, we start by talking about, I mean, his career in sports media because he, he's he's worked with a lot of guys um, that 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 we as broadcasters all admire. Um, he was there at the founding of FS1, so we touch a little bit on that. Um, but he's been the statistician freelance statistician for for more than two decades uh and he's done a lot of work with the alberts marv and kenny uh so he's got some perspective on what they do and and things of that nature but uh we're going to talk a lot about the book we're going to talk a lot about who's in the book uh the perspective of broadcasters the perspective of play-by-play guys and just some cool sporting events uh that come up and get mentioned uh so that being said let's dive right in today play-by-play cast episode 24 eric merlis author of the new book i was there uh, at Fox and at CBS, I was in charge of the tickers. So all of the editorial and all of the uh, working with the different departments to make sure everybody's needs were met um, in the various tickers for all of the Fox Sports Networks, and then before that, at CBS Sports Network. And you were there when um, you were there when FS1 got launched too, right? Yes, I was out there for launch. Yeah. Uh, a lot of stress, a lot of long hours, and then when the flip, you know, when the switch gets flipped, it's uh, it's real gratifying uh, to see you know all of this work. And, and and you know, I moved out there. I went back and forth. We launched in in August, and I had gone back and forth from May to 
July. We were still living in New York. My family was in New York. So I went back and forth for a couple months and then stayed out there for a month without them. Uh, they didn't move out till October. So I was, I was completely immersed in getting this stuff up and running. And I was, you know, I did all the ticker stuff. I did, um, what we called the wing, which was that rundown on the right-hand side of the screen. I know that network doesn't do it anymore, but you know, I, that, that fell under my group as well. So there were a lot of moving pieces that we were working on and a lot of changes that were, that we went through as we got closer to launch. But again, once that once once that network hits the air and you see all your work come you know come to life, uh, it, it's one of the more gratifying feelings you can imagine. What's it like trying to? Everybody for for years has tried to build that competitor, obviously to ESPN. Um, what's it like being on the inside of the the group that I think has made probably the biggest challenge to it in recent years? Well, it was at launch. It was we're going to get them. Uh, it was, there was, there was a lot of rhetoric both in the press and in the office. Um, it kind of mellowed out as those first numbers came in. Um, and now in the last year or so, there have been quite a few changes, um, and they're attacking it in a different way and they've brought different management in and we'll, we'll see, uh, whether this, uh, avenue is successful. It, the, the, the first, you know, the, the first attempt outside of when games were on and, and really the big games, the NLCS, things like that, those are the nights where they can really compete with ESPN. But, but outside of that, they haven't figured out the formula yet. Maybe the, maybe the folks that are in charge now can do that. Yeah, the Jamie Horowitz group and, and having exactly. uh, Cowherd exactly. and all those kinds of guys. Um, you've yeah. obviously been around a lot of play-by-play guys, too, in your time. Uh, what have you learned from those guys and, and what have you seen from those guys just being around them and, and doing the work that you've done? You can't work hard enough. That, that, would, be, that would be the first and, and foremost thing that I've seen from every successful broadcaster. And uh, I'm good friends with Kenny Albert. We went to college together. Uh, I was his traveling football stat guy for 12 seasons. And nobody works harder. And people might think others are out there. You know, a lot of guys out there work very hard. Nobody works harder than Kenny Albert. Um, between his schedule and his preparation for each game, it's um, it, it's never ending how much work he's doing. And when he shows up at a game and you see how many notes he has with him, and you look at his board at a football game, and there's not a whole lot of white space in between the words because <laughs> of how of just how much he does, and, and you know. People look at stat guys as doing all the research and and coming up with all these really cool notes. Kenny does a lot of that himself, uh, and and it's amazing that the play-by-play guy is coming up with more research notes than the stat guys during the week and the guys on the crew during the week. And it's a testament to again just how hard he works. And he learned that from his father, who who does the same thing. And then you look around sports, and and the guys that I've worked the closest with, both Alberts and and uh, Ian Eagle and Mike Breen, they do the same thing. You know, there's a thing about guys that cut their teeth in New York. Those four guys, Steve Levy is another guy that I've known for many years. Gus Johnson has been here for a number of years. Um, they all. They all kind of learn a lot from Marv. He's the, he, he's the one that when, when my generation was growing up, we wanted to be him. And the, 
the folks that were lucky enough to become successful in this business that are from here will all tell you that that's the guy that they model everything after. And they see how hard he works and they all work just as hard because that's what the formula to success that they learned was. What's Marv do so well outside? I mean, obviously the preparation is such a big part of what we do, but what makes him stand out to all those guys? You know, we, we all grew up listening to him call Nick games and Ranger games. And, um, there, there were obviously the famous calls and we, you know, as a New Yorker, I wasn't old enough, but over time I, I've certainly come to appreciate his call of the Willis Reed game. Um, and then when he would, you know, when he would start doing the NBC stuff for the NBA and there were just so many legendary calls that he had, um, the just the way he told the story was fascinating. You you couldn't turn it off. I mean, you knew it was a New York guy. He had a New York voice, uh, and and it was a different style than anyone else. Even in New York, it was just a different style, and it was captivating. And you and then you would turn on the local news, and he'd be doing the highlights of the games on on the on the on Channel Four on the NBC affiliate here in New York. So he'd be going from a Nick game or a Ranger game across town to the studio, and he'd be doing the highlights from all the other games as well. And you saw that combination, and you just said, "Wow, this is this has got to be the life. This I, I, this is what I want to do." The book is I Was There. Uh, Marv writes the foreword for it, uh, and I thought it was cool in it. He said, uh, tell the readers basically to try and remember where they were and kind of compare notes uh, to, to what they're going to read in the book and, and what they remember of moments as well. Uh, how did you uh, compile the list of who was in it and decide uh, who you wanted to kind of go after and, and get the, the thoughts and, and opinions of? Basically, I wrote every name down that I could think of, and <laughs> and I should preface it by saying this is my second go around doing this. So I did this back in 2007 um, was the first time I, I, that this came out, and I had 100 people then, and I wanted to keep the number of people that were in both books to an absolute minimum. I didn't want it to just be the same book that I put out nine years earlier. So um, the, the the people that I've mentioned – Marv and Kenny and Ian and, and Steve Levy and, and, and Mike Breen and one other, Chris Myers, who I've known for many years. Those are the only ones that repeat in both books. Um, those are the people, for the, you know, for in most cases, I've known all those guys for about 25 years. I, you know, I was lucky enough to break into this business um, working with every one of them um, uh, many years ago. Um, I, you know, Ian and Ian and Steve and Breen all worked at FAN together when I interned there in 1989. You know, I'm putting dates on it, but you know, that's how far it goes back. And you know, my friendship with Kenny was at the same time, and I was his dad's stat guy at, at that time as well. So those guys, those they're the only ones that repeat. Those were the givens. I knew that they were going to be in this book. After that, I just put as many names down on paper as I could and started going through my contacts. At the time, I was working at Fox, so I went through the people there to say, all right, of the Fox people, who can I get? Who you, who who can you guys connect me with? Um, and then started working again through other contacts, um, through friends. Kenny obviously was very generous in helping me get to a bunch of people. Um, ESPN was very generous as well. And the next thing I knew, I actually interviewed a hundred people for this book. And as we were putting it on paper, uh, it just got 
so long that my publisher said we need to cut it down a little bit and we came up with 65 as the magic number um and i had to tell 35 people that thank you for the time i appreciate it i have your interview on file if i do any you know if i decide to move forward with another book or something like that um and that's how the 65 really were that's how we came up with the 65 it was who could i get hold of um who was easy enough to get hold of who did i have a, a an immediate connection to um, there are obviously people that aren't in it that weren't in the first book that I'm dying to, to <laughs> do this project with. Um, and, and it was nothing more than I just wasn't able to make that connection with them. There were very few people that shall go unnamed, but there really weren't that many that, that declined. Um, which, which is, you know, you know, it's a testament to guys like, like Bob Costas, who I don't know very well, and Jim Nance, who I've never met, to say yes to a project like this. But as as a Jim Nance and a Bob Costas and a Joe Buck and a Marv Albert sign on to do this, it's easier to sell it to everybody else to participate when they see those names are involved. Um, you have 35, you mentioned, that are not in the book, uh, and you list the names at the front as well, uh, I mean, yeah. and it's Bob Wachus and Dave Pash, Beth Mowens, uh, so, I mean, it's not like small chickens here. Um, how did you How did you go through the, the, the slicing and dicing of trying to figure out who you, who you had space for, uh, and then what do you remember from the 35 that's not in the book that you, that, that you were like, gosh, I really want it in there, uh, that, that you can't read in the book, that, but that you think was uh, impactful? Oh, there were there were there were a bunch of people that it was killing me to cut. Um, when I was told I had to go to eighty, I was struggling to make the decisions. When I had to go to eighty from eighty to sixty-five, um, you know, I was basically reaching out to to coworkers and saying, "Okay, if you were to buy this book, would you rather read this person or this person?" <laughs> and in some cases, in some cases, it would be like, "What are the stories they tell? How good are the stories?" You know, so that you know that would be one example, uh, and that and 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 there are a couple people in the book that probably, you know, aren't as recognizable as others who tell such amazing stories that I ha- I couldn't resist but put them in simply because of how good the stories were. You've uh, I've I've listened to a lot of interviews you've done um, on the book, and there's two stories you continuously uh, talk yeah. about as your favorites, and that's the Terry Gannon Rudy Rudiger game. And the uh, the Jeremy Schapp uh, going with his dad to the Bucky Dent game and sitting in Bucky Dent's seats. Um, if I had to press you on a third, <laughs> what else is a, a favorite for you that's that's in the book? Uh, I, I you'll notice I also I'll often often tell the story, and I actually did a, did something this morning on Sirius XM NHL. We were going into hockey, but you know, then we moved into other sports. And the story that I told them, uh, Trey Wingo was at Super Bowl 42. Now, that's one of the most talked about events in the entire book. And um, you get so many different perspectives. There's six people talk about it. Six out of 65, almost 10% of the people in the book talk about this event. And that's the famous Manning to Tyree play. Now, Trey Wingo, at the time of that play, was down in the tunnel waiting to go out on the field to interview players. It was late in the game, as were you know uh, quite a few members of the media. Um, so he couldn't see what was going on out there. He couldn't see a monitor. So he was on the phone with, with Mark Schlereth, who was his partner at the time, and, and, and Schlereth was giving him play-by-play over the phone of what was going on in the field so that he knew what was happening. 
And on the Manning play, Schlereth says Manning drops back to pass, throws the ball downfield, Tyree catches it first down. Well, <laughs> quite, there was quite a bit more on that play that happened um, that, <laughs> that Trey did not know happened. So the game ends on the, on the, the Plaxico Burris touchdown. It's the game-winning touchdown, and everybody goes out and rushes the field when the, when, you know, after, the, after the final gun, and he goes running over to Burris to interview him and looks around, and he's basically the only guy interviewing Plaxico Burris, who just scored the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. And he looks up, and he sees everybody surrounding David Tyree and can't understand why. And then, obviously, he sees a tape of the, the play, and he talks to some people on the field and found out what happened um, and, and realized, you know, that's why everybody was talking to David Tyree. And it's one of the iconic Super Bowl plays um, and always will be. <laughs> um, but here's a guy who was in the stadium and was, you know, trying to, trying to see what was going on. And you have guys in the book talk about, you know, I was here when it, you know, Joe Buck talks about that play and calling it and how much fun that was. Um, it, it, again, it's an iconic play. Um, and, and you get, and you still get completely different perspectives on it, which is, which is one of the cool things about the book is we index everything in the back. So you can go in, in, in date order and see every event that's listed in the book and who was there. And then you can go and read the six different people that talk about that game. You can go and see their stories about it and compare and contrast and, and see just how everybody views everything a little bit differently. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, I mean, even flipping through the first few pages of the book, you realize that the first like three or four entries all talk about the Dream Team. Um, so I had the same thought. Uh, what's it? What was it like for you uh, being able to compare and contrast the stories that people told about the same events kind of as you were doing the interviews and as they were happening um, and then being able to translate that? Uh, did you feel like you gained or, or garnered a different appreciation for major events, hearing them from so many different perspectives? That Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and the most talked about event in the book is the 2001 World Series. Ten people talk about the series. Nobody talks about the same thing. Because if, if you remember that World Series, so many things happened. Uh, it was the first World Series after 9-11. It was in New York after 9-11. You had George Bush throwing out the first pitch before Game 3 in New York. Games 4 and 5, the Yankees tie on home runs in the bottom of the ninth to send it to extra innings. Game 7, the Diamondbacks win in the bottom of the ninth with, with the, the Luis Gonzalez hit off of Mariano Rivera. There are just so many amazing moments in that World Series that you can't crystallize it into one thing that stands out for everybody. So you have 10 people all talking completely different. You know, they'll, they'll all, the, the themes are the same in some cases. You know, the 9-11 stuff, obviously, um, is, is the, that's the thing that ties all of these games together. But, you know, the individual games, there, were, there was so much drama, and people described that drama in so many different ways because of, of which part of the series resonated the most with them. And, and I thought that was, you know, as I was getting those stories, I couldn't get enough of those. You know, you, you don't want to read, you know, too many stories about the same event, but when they're coming at it from different angles, it, it, it's... Um, it's a better read almost when they're all talking about the same thing and nobody's saying the same thing. Did it make you rethink history at all in a little bit? And part of this is my age, yeah. but you know, I, 
I did not realize that the Willis Reed game was the same day as the Kent State shootings. Um, yeah. And I know that's brought up in there. Uh, d- did it make you kind of step back and reevaluate uh, y- the way that you looked at sports? I think I think it gives you a different appreciation. You know, working in the business for so long, and 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 you know, a lot of broadcasters will tell you that, and a lot of writers will tell you the same thing. You know, a lot of people will take for granted working in the business because it's a job. And uh, on a Tuesday in February in New York, um, getting ready to cover, you know, when Minnesota comes to town, regardless of which sport and which team it is, um, you know, it's not not as easy to get fired up for a night like that. So, you know, it, it, it lets you kind of, remind yourself why everybody's in this business, what makes it fun. Um, and, and in turn, you know, you, you look at it from the, the, the eyes of the sports fan and, and you remember all of the different reasons that you're a sports fan at the same time. And it just makes it, there are so many cool avenues that you can approach it from when you talk about that. You had mentioned off the top uh, different stories and places that guys went, and, and we've talked about some of the most common ones, but I wanted to go the opposite direction of that. Um, is there something out there that uh, on face value somebody would say, I don't care about this event at all, and then when they're done reading it would say, oh my God, I can't believe that this is the perspective that I just got by reading that? Um, I, I think you, you'll read some boxing stories and some tennis stories and see that. There's the, Charlie Steiner tells uh, and it has it, it, he has a story in there that has nothing to do with anything that happened on the court <laughs> um and 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 it's one of, and it, it's just one of the great stories and when you and everyone in this book is a storyteller so when 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 you get someone going and they're telling a story that they're so passionate and enjoy and enjoy sharing so much um you can't get enough and and he tells the story about when he was covering Wimbledon back in the early 80s and ended up getting into a brawl in the press room with the tabloid people from London over over the they were arguing over over the line of questioning and how it was ruining it for the others um uh, and you don't know that that's going on as a fan you know, here's John McEnroe, and everybody knows the petulant behavior that he exhibited on the court back in those days. And you say to yourself, "Okay, well, I, I know John McEnroe, and I know how he how he behaved, but behind the scenes, what his beha- behavior was um, was causing in press rooms, and, and that's really what it comes down to: is that these guys were fighting over." his behavior because he was walking out of press conferences because of the questions that the London tabloid people were asking him. Uh, and it, and it, you know, I, I didn't even know that story. And that was, you know, 35 years ago. Um, I grew up watching John McEnroe matches. I never knew this story. And, and, and it's as, as a member of the media, it's kind of important because it reminds you that there are other people out there and not everybody's going to help you write your story, and they have their interests, and they want to sell tabloids, certainly in London. I mean, that's that's yeah. what the tabloids are all about. So, you know, it, 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 kind, of, it kind of reminds you certain things, you know, about the business itself. What's Costas like? The best storyteller I've ever talked to. 
Um, I think that's the best way to describe it. He's a Long Island guy, as I am. We, we, grew, we grew up about a town apart from each other, um, different eras, obviously, but um, he's a Long Island guy. Um, so we've had a chance to share stories over the years. Um, when he, he, I, think, I think he is one of the great American storytellers, um, both on the air and off. Um, the way he, the way he spins a phrase, um, and the way he's able to relate even the most mundane of stories is just fascinating. Um, I, I think, I think everybody should have the honor of sitting with him for just a couple minutes, just to hear him talk. And you do when he comes on the air, but, um, when there's no camera on him and there's no microphone and there's, and it's, and you're, you're just letting him go and he can say whatever he wants and doesn't have to worry about language and just tells the story. It's, it's an absolutely incredible experience. What was different? Uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, Eric, but what was different about play-by-play guys uh, or broadcasters? Cause I know you, you interview a lot of different people and there's writers and things of that nature in there. Um, but what was maybe unique about the perspective that a guy with the headset on had about a lot of the events that you cover? Well, they, they have to do it as it's happening. You know, the writers have the opportunity to watch a game unfold before they have to tell their story. Uh, so the play-by-play guys, you know, they've got to get the words out properly and effectively as everything is happening. Um, so there's a little bit more pressure on them to, to do their job. And you hear it as they relate their stories because, um, you know, their thoughts during the game are, unfolding as the game is unfolding. They have their notes in front of them and they have their producers and they know certain storylines going in and they know certain packages going in. But, you know, when, when something spectacular happens and I'll go back to the Manning tie replay, you know, that, how do you, how do you, how do you prepare for a moment like that? You can't because it's, it just happens. You're not, you don't expect something, you know, it's a Super Bowl, and you know, that there's going to be a championship awarded and you might see one of the great games, but that play, how, how can you possibly prepare for something like that? Whereas a writer, you, you know, you see the play unfold, you can watch the replay three or four times and then formulate your words. And again, because of that, they, as they tell the story, you get that sense of, I had to do it this way. I didn't, there was no net for me to fall into uh, in case I said something wrong, you have to get it right. Um, and, and that comes across in their stories. The book is I Was There. It's number two right now on Amazon for sports journalism books. Uh, Eric Merlis is the author. 65 uh, sports personalities, sports journalism personalities, with uh, their recollections of their top five uh, moments that they witnessed um, in person in sports. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, and, uh, and Joel, sharing the thank knowledge. you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. That's Eric Merlis joining us. Again, author of the brand new book, I Was There. It's available anywhere books are sold, which nowadays I think is online. Um, but if you can find a bookstore near you, Barnes & Noble, I almost said Borders. Um, that's harkening back to a, another time. Uh, Barnes & Nobles, you can find it. Uh, or or Amazon.com, uh, where you know, we just said it's, uh, it's number two among sports journalism books. Uh, so done quite well for itself, and you can read the first couple of pages on Amazon as well, which gives you a, a feel for it, and uh, certainly go on out and check it out uh, if you enjoyed 
our, uh, our conversation with Eric, but there's some awesome stuff in there. And I, he kind of gives you a teaser of it. Um, the, <laughs> the Trey Wingo not having any idea that David Tyree's catch was incredible is amazing. But I think as broadcasters, we can all relate to that in some way, shape, or form. You know, as play-by-play guys, we all pretty much see everything, but I'm sure there's been a time that everybody listening to this podcast can harken back to uh, where they were in a situation like that <laughs> and, and and trying to piece things together on the run and on the go. And uh, it's incredible. Uh, it, it happens at every level. Um, but it's neat to hear those stories, and there's much more in there. Costas is in there. Joe Buck is in there. Uh, if, if you're a broadcaster and you're big, uh, you're in this book. So go go ahead and uh, and check that out. Uh, Eric Merlis joining us here on uh, Play-By-Playcast episode 24. Hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. We will be back at it next week here on the podcast next Friday. So looking forward to hearing from you uh, and uh, having you join us then. Until then, they're playing the go-home queue. So uh, that's our cue to get up on out of here. Uh, hit it, Marshmallow. We'll talk to you next week. This is Play-By-Playcast. Play-by-play-cast.